If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is a special hour number three of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com, although for this hour, the website that you might want to be most aware of is www.framingpaterno.com. That's as in Joe Paterno, a website I created about five years ago, which is really by far the only truthful source of information on the so-called Penn State scandal. The reason why I'm doing this special hour is because in the couple weeks since we have taken a hiatus on the World According to Zig podcast, the Penn State administrators were sentenced to jail, significant jail time as well as home arrest, for the misdemeanor convictions that two of them pled to, and one, the former president of Penn State, Grant Spanier, was convicted of, even though the jury foreman said that if they had to do it over again, they would not have convicted and which by the way a conviction that probably isn't even valid because it's outside the statute of limitations and if appealed to a reasonable court will almost certainly uh, be revoked but unfortunately logic facts law (laughs) that means almost nothing in this case uh, which is what I've learned a long time ago in the five years that I've devoted to this whole thing and I decided, since I've never done this before, that this would be a good time to, at least for the record, do something that nobody else has ever even tried to do in this case. And by the way, let me be clear. The news reporter who got the Pulitzer Prize, absurdly, the Pulitzer Prize for her reporting in this case, a woman by the name of Sarah Gannam, who now currently works for CNN, who won the Pulitzer Prize as a 24-year-old female phenom. Think about that. Uh, She never wrote a book about the case. Biggest story she's ever, in 24 years old, that she's never, ever, impossible to even conceive of her being part of a bigger story than this. She wins the Pulitzer Prize. There's not a publishing house in the country that would not, have signed her immediately to a book deal. No book. Hmm. I wonder why. Prosecutors gave one interview 
One, to Armin Katayan, who might as well have been Sean Hannity interviewing Donald Trump. And that's how disgusting it was. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was almost sexual, and that the way Sandusky was accused of. I mean, it, it, was, it was repulsive. One major interview. Hmm, I wonder why. They never wrote a book either. So my point here is there's a reason. And the reason is nobody can tell a story from beginning to end that makes any goddamn sense. Because what you've been told is a myth. And I know that for people who have not followed it, they think that's crazy. I bought part of the myth for a very long time until I interviewed Jerry Sandusky not once but twice for six hours in prison. I did a whole new investigation based upon, <laughs> wait a minute, hold on. We need to revisit all of this because none of this is making any damn sense. None of the math adds up. And nobody knows more about this case than I do. So for the record, I want to take approximately this hour, and I don't even know whether or not I'm going to be able to do it in an hour. We'll see. But we'll, we'll, I'll do the best I can to keep this the Reader's Digest version of what actually happened. And to that end, I'm not going to be able to get into why I think what happened happened, because then <laughs> this would be an eight-hour-long podcast. I'm just going to tell you what I'm pretty sure after five-plus years of investigation, what really happened. So for those who don't recall, the best place to start this story is in the spring of 1998. Now, in the spring of 1998, Jerry Sandusky is a famed defensive coordinator for Penn State University. He had been part of two national championship teams and, in fact, in 1986 had gotten credit for basically winning Penn State the national championship because his defense was able to intercept Vinny Testaverde. Remember that name? Vinny Testaverde five times in that famous Miami-Penn State Fiesta Bowl. But by 1998, the bloom had kind of gone off of Sandusky's rose a little bit from a college coaching standpoint for a couple reasons. One, because Joe Paterno, who was significantly older than Sandusky, was a legend at Penn State, was showing no signs of retirement. You know, most... Most people, when they get in their 60s or 70s, they start thinking about retirement. Paterno realized he had no interest in retirement. He really didn't do anything else. He was still strong. The team was still doing pretty well. There was no need for him to retire. And because he was not going to retire, there was no place for Sandusky to go. He was not going to be elevated to head coach. And, you know, by the time, this is important, by the, if Paterno continues on late into his 70s, Sandusky then becomes too old to be the guy to take over. It's, it's kind of like fruit. You know, once you become too ripe or, you know, now, now you're spoiled, you're too old to be the, the young, exciting new head coach. So basically the timing was no longer going to work out for Jerry Sandusky to replace Joe Paterno as head coach. And in... Early 1998, before the spring, we now know that Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky discussed Jerry Sandusky retiring because Jerry had kind of gotten tired of it. Joe wasn't all that happy with how the defense was performing. And Jerry Sandusky ran a charity called the Second Mile Charity, which was for at-risk kids, not just boys, at-risk kids. And it was really the passion of his life. So, in the spring of 1998, 
Jerry Sandusky is told that there is a boy who has cancer. This boy would end up being known as victim number six in his case. And Jerry Sandusky is a guy who grew up in a very different era, in a very different culture. He grew up in a rec home where there was nudity everywhere. And in 1998, in Happy Valley, as State College is known, Pennsylvania, this is a very naive time. All right, this is not a time, this is before the Catholic Church sex scandal. 1998 might as well be 1958. And Jerry Sandusky, for some reason, is showering naked, and the, the boy I referred to is also naked, and the boy has shampoo in his hair, and he's not very tall. And Jerry picks him up to wash the shampoo off of his hair. Puts him down, and that's it. No allegation of anything sexual, no allegation of an erection, no allegation of inappropriate touching, although I guess you could argue, I mean, as far as appropriateness goes, um, you know, the lifting of a naked boy in a shower. But again, it's 1998. It's a different set of mores and standards, in my opinion. So the mom of this boy questions why the boy has his hair wet, and he tells him he took a shower with Jerry. Now, the mom gets irate. Again, I got no problem with the mom being irate, although based upon what I know about the mom, I think it's pretty clear the mom immediately saw potential dollar signs. So the mom is frantic, and she gets the uh, authorities to look into this. And the authorities do a surveillance of Jerry Sandusky. And, you know, supposedly Jerry Zendusky apologizes to the mom, which I've never understood why this is somehow indication of Jerry admitting guilt. He felt bad that he had caused a problem. He had upset the mom. Again, he thought this kid had cancer, which apparently he did not. And, you know, Jerry's a very naive, frankly, stupid guy. I've gotten to know him. And so he tells the mom under surveillance Something to the effect of, you know, the quote was, I wish I was dead. Jerry says that never happened. There's no tape of this. But a lot of people have latched on to that as, aha! Well, frankly, I say worse myself on the golf course on, a, like, every nine holes. So I, I've never been very impressed by the significance of that supposed statement. So the police and the DA do a full investigation of this. And they decide no charges are to be filed. And by the way, this DA was no fan of Penn State, a guy by the name of Ray Greekar. Was well known for charging Penn State football people with all sorts of things. So it's not like he was in the can for Paterno or Penn State or anything like that. And Jerry gets told, hey, um, in a very informal way, I've done an hour-long interview with Sandusky about this, which you can find on YouTube. It's clear in Jerry's mind, He's basically being told he's being pulled over for speeding and giving a warning. In his mind, that's how important this is. This is not a big deal. Just don't, Jerry, don't be stupid. Don't do this again. Don't be showering with kids. You know, we know this is, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't mean anything by it. You remember, Jerry's in his mid-50s at this point. There's never been any kind of allegation against him previously at all. He's been, and people wonder, okay, so why is... You know, isn't this weird to have any? I've never had an allegation of any kind against me involving kids. Why him? He runs a massive charity. It's kind of like I've never had a major splinters. 
but I'm not a carpenter either, right? It's the same type of thing, okay? So if you think about it in that way, this is what Jerry Sandusky does. And kids gravitated to him because he's a famous football coach. So not long after this, it gets announced that, as had been priorly discussed with Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky is going to retire. Now, this retirement gets completely misperceived in retrospect because people think, aha, there was an investigation, and then he retires. He must have been forced to retire. Well, except there's a massive problem in that. Not only did Paterno, we have notes that prove they talked about this before the episode, but Jerry doesn't retire that year. Jerry retires two football seasons later. So use your freaking brain, all right? You don't, if you're forcing a pedophile or a potential pedophile to retire from one of the premier football institutions in the country, you get rid of that guy immediately. And by the way, if you can't find a replacement, you certainly can by the next season, all right? So, so two seasons later, 1999, Jerry officially retires with great fanfare. He is the national assistant coach of the year. He's carried off the field in his last game on national television. Sports Illustrated writes a back-page story saying how wonderful this guy is. It, by the way, quotes his adopted son, Matt Sandusky, who you may know as his most famous accuser at this point, as you know, Matt having said that Jerry saved his life, which is true, and how awesome he is. And so Jerry retires to go devote his entire life to the Second Mile Charity. Now, interestingly, Jerry isn't quite sure he's done with coaching yet. And at the end of the next season, the 2000 season, he gets an inquiry because he's still, you know, mid-late 50s at this point. He's just young enough to be hired as a head coach because he still has enough time for a future. He gets an inquiry from the University of Virginia to be their head football coach. Now, if you don't understand the way this works, that's a big stinking deal. All right? There is an enormous amount of vetting that goes into a major university hiring a head football coach. And in this case, there were enormous connections between the University of Virginia and Penn State, including the fact that Jay Paterno, Joe Paterno's son, was a former grad assistant at the University of Virginia and was married to a University of Virginia alum. Okay, so if there was any concerns about Jerry Sandusky being a pedophile, and it was well publicized that Jerry Sandusky was getting his second interview to be the head football coach at the University of Virginia, then all Penn State or all Joe Paterno or all Jay Paterno would have had to done is make one phone call and it's all over. Virginia would have avoided this at all costs. Well, Jerry's in his second interview, and they've given him a contract, and he's actually discussing with them whether or not he can open a chapter of the Second Mile Charity in Charlottesville. And if they can, then he's going to take the job. So in his mind, he's taking the job, which if it happens, there's never any Penn State scandal ever, period. None of this happens. Four people at least who are going to spend time in, in jail, and one of which is probably going to die in prison, Never happens if Jerry takes this job, except something happens that's outside of Jerry's control, which is incredibly ironic given what I've already told you. And that is that the New York Jets, 
lose their last three games of their season in 2000. You can look it up. They finished 10 and 6. They missed the playoffs by, I think, half a game. Their coach, now you may remember, if you're a football fan, there was that whole big Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick controversy, and Belichick was going to be the coach, and he bailed. Well, Al Groh takes the job. They basically have no one else to hire, so they give Al Groh, this guy, the job for basically a one-year tryout. Well, they lose their last three games. They miss the playoffs. Al Groh knows he's getting fired. Where did Al Groh go to college? Al Groh went to the University of Virginia. So Al Groh calls the University of Virginia right in the middle of Jerry's second interview and says, <laughs> hold everything. Don't tire Sandusky. I need the gig. The very next day after Jerry's second interview, Al Groh, much to the shock of Jerry Sandusky, is hired as the head coach of the University of Virginia. Here's the mind-blowing part of that. You know who the quarterback was for the New York Jets when they lost their last three games of the 2000 season? Vinny frickin' Testaverde. How's that for revenge? So if Vinny Testaverde doesn't lose the last three games, Jerry Sandusky gets the Virginia job. There's never any Penn State scandal, period. End of sentence. So Jerry doesn't get the job. His book, Touched, comes out immediately after this. And a month after that, Jerry gets seen in a shower with a boy by the name of Alan Myers, who was a month short of his 14th birthday and two and a half years short of winning a varsity letter on his high school football team. He gets seen in a shower on a Friday night by a graduate assistant by the name of Mike McQueary. Now, what does Mike McQueary do when he sees this? Basically nothing. He doesn't say anything to Jerry Sandusky. He doesn't say anything to the boy. He doesn't try to beat the shit out of Sandusky. He doesn't try to get the boy out of danger. He leaves them there. In his own words, he slams a locker room door. That was the extent of what McQueary did. Because that's the way any six foot five, 235-pound, 27-year-old former quarterback at Penn State would react if they saw an older man naked in a shower with a boy being sexually assaulted. They would just slam the locker door and they would walk out. I would suggest to you that that's not remotely consistent with what anybody would do in that circumstance because Mike McQuarrie didn't see a sexual assault. But we'll get to why he said he did momentarily. So he then talks to his dad and a guy by the name of Dr. Dranoff who works with his dad. And Dranoff asks him three times, did you see a sex act? And McQuarrie says, no, he didn't. And they decide, all right, we're not going to go to the police because he didn't see a crime. But maybe we should tell Joe Paterno about this. So McQuarrie decides to see Joe Paterno and... When the crap hits the fan on this story in November of 2011, we don't know this because McQuarrie got the date, the month, and the year of the event wrong. See, I just told you it happened in February of 2001. McQuarrie originally testified 10 years later that it happened in March of 2002 after 9-11 as opposed to before 9-11, which, again, I submit is not a plausible way you would recollect a situation where you were seeing a local legend allegedly raping a young boy, you would remember the year in which that happened. But because we got the date wrong, we don't realize when it mattered why McQuarrie had a really strong incentive to go see Joe Paterno and get some face time with the head coach. 
as a lowly graduate assistant at his alma mater, desperate for a real job. Because a graduate assistant is not a real job. You're basically paid nothing. All right, you're 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 basically you're below the lowest end of the totem pole with regard to coaching. What we now know is that two days prior to this event where he saw Sergio Sandusky in a shower, a job opens up. Kenny Jackson leaves the wide receiver coaching job at Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, interestingly, this this job is, to me, incredibly important to understanding what did not happen in all this. Because had there been a cover-up at Penn State of any sort, whether by Joe Paterno, by the athletic director, by the head of campus police, by the president of the university, the first thing that would have happened is that they would have said, Mike, thanks for coming to us with this. Let's keep this between ourselves. And oh, by the way, you've been doing a hell of a job. And there's a job opened up that's perfect for you. The wide receivers coaching job. And congratulations, you're our new wide receivers coach. That didn't happen. Now, in case you're thinking, well, maybe Mike didn't want the job or wasn't qualified for it, guess what does happen? That job reopens up three years later. Three years. Guess who gets the job? Mike McQuarrie. So this is a job he wanted, was qualified for, but did not get and remain as a graduate assistant. They, Penn State makes the brilliant decision in this cover-up of this event, which, by the way, Jerry's a former coach, so why the hell they're even bothering to, to cover up for him is beyond me. Ask a member of the media who won't explain that to you because I haven't gotten an explanation in five and a half years what the motivation of this is. So the reality is this, that McQuarrie doesn't get the job, which he would have if there was a cover-up. And I don't believe he tells anybody, whether it's Joe Paterno or any of the administrators, that he saw a sex act. In fact, the evidence is he told him he saw Jerry and a boy in a shower naked for two or three seconds and may have been using the phrase horsing around. Again, not smart, probably not appropriate, but not illegal, and certainly not the basis of one one millionth of the scandal that would then ensue. But it doesn't ensue then. Oh, no, no. What happens after this? Well, Mike McQuarrie ends up playing in not one, but two Jerry Sandusky-sponsored golf tournaments after this happens. Mike McQuarrie is seen at a charity, Easter Seals charity football game by hundreds of people joking around with Jerry Sandusky physically, even though they weren't even on the same team, which doesn't seem really consistent with a guy who saw a man raping a child. Now, as far as the boy is concerned, this Alan Myers, here's what happens to him. So, Alan Myers doesn't have a dad. And the real story here is that Jerry thought he was Alan's dad, which is why he thought taking a shower naked with him was no big stinking deal and joking around with him in the shower. But Alan Myers, because he has no dad, at his senior high school football game, when you walk out as a senior, your parents come with you. Guess who was walking with Alan Myers as a as, at a senior high school football game. It was Jerry Sandusky. Kind of weird for the guy who had raped you just a couple of years earlier. Guess who um, works at Jerry Sandusky's camp for young boys for football as Jerry's assistant coach? There's a photograph, which I have on my phone. I've made public. Here 
Alan Myers is helping coach Jerry with Jerry Sandusky. Basically, if Jerry's a pedophile, helping him groom future potential subjects for pedophilia because they're all the same age, you know, that 11, 12, 13 years old era, the area where Jerry was accused of molesting all these people. So that's weird. But that's not as weird as the fact that Alan ends up going to Penn State for three months during the summer and living with the Sandusky's. Kind of weird. But even weirder than that, um, when Jerry's mother dies, his mother, not his wife, his mother, Jerry's mother dies, Alan, who's now in the Marines, so he's not a wimpy little wallflower who can't defend himself or stand up for himself. He's in the Marines. He drives by his own admission. He wrote about this, by the way, in local newspapers after the accusations against Jerry came forward, that supporting Jerry in his own name. He, he drives 10 and a half hours each way from his Marine barracks in North Carolina to attend the funeral. That's exactly what you would do in a case where someone had raped you. And then finally, Alan gets married at 23 as a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And he not only invites Jerry and his wife Dottie to their wedding, he takes a special photo along with Jerry in his Marine uniform, which Jerry ends up using as the photo for his resignation letter from the Second Mile Charity about a year or so before the crap hits the fan in this case. The reality is, just by what I just told you, all of which is 1,000% true, there's no chance that Mike McQuarrie saw a sex act. So not much is happening. The world hasn't changed much. Jerry doesn't go into coaching because the Virginia thing falls by the wayside. Jerry devotes his life to the Second Mile Charity. And then in late 2008, all this gets started up for real. When a guy by the name of Aaron Fisher, who is about 15 years old, he lives in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, and Aaron has been very close to Jerry Sandusky for the previous two or three years. Aaron is a track star and a wrestling star. I've seen video of Aaron at the age of, I believe, 13, 14, kicking the ass of a 30-something neighbor uh, in a in a wrestling match that they had because the guy thought he could beat up the little kid and he couldn't. So again, not a not a wimpy little boy who can't defend himself. And from all accounts, what seems to have happened, from what I can tell, is that Aaron's grades start dropping for whatever reason. Now he's the fourteen year old boy at this point with no dad. By the way, his stepdad is currently in prison for 100 counts of child molestation, including molestation against his own child, although that was a, that was a daughter. Uh, he's never had his own, his own... His biological dad, by the way, also was a child molester, but he never knew his own dad. So uh, we've got a situation where crappy household, which is what the Second Mile Charity was all about, which is what ended up coming back to bite Jerry Sandusky, because all these guys, they're coming from really horrible backgrounds. And he's got a mom... Who, who is effectively a, a welfare queen. She's been cheating the system as much as she can, living off the doll. They're living on, in welfare housing. And Jerry took a liking or felt sorry for Aaron, but Aaron's grades start dropping. Not unusual for a kid from this background at this age. And Jerry is giving Aaron a lot of grief 
about the fact that his grades are dropping. And Aaron is scheduled to go out on a Saturday night with Jerry and I think another boy. I don't know what the hell they were going to do. Probably something really boring, right? I mean, that's because Jerry going, hanging out with Jerry was basically soda pop and a and and a jukebox and a, a pinball machine type of stuff. All right, but that's not to the mom's liking because the mom is a drunk, and the mom has already scheduled her night out drinking and is expecting Jerry to take care of her 14, almost 15-year-old son. So she and Aaron get into an uh, argument. This is all witnessed by the neighbor, which I have on tape, which you can find at framingpaternal.com. They get into an argument, and Aaron decides to play what I call the he-makes-me-uncomfortable card, Mom, in a way of trying to get out of going out that night. Now, it's also important to point out, by all accounts, every discussion I've ever had with friends of his at the time and girlfriends that he's had at the time, Aaron is a hyper, hyper-sexualized kid. I mean, he, he claims to have already had sex with dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of girls, which I don't believe the hundred. He, he's a serial exaggerator, too. But the, the reality is, he is not only very knowledgeable about sex, but my guess is he probably wanted to go out looking for girls that night and not hanging out with Jerry Sandusky. So he plays the mom he makes me feel uncomfortable card. He and his mom go into the house. They have a discussion. The mom comes back out not long after and tells the neighbor, quote, I'm going to own that motherfucker's house. Referring to Jerry Sandusky. Now, you might be able to discern that when they went in the house that Aaron Fisher spilled all the beans that mom (laughs) over the last several years, Jerry's been sexually molesting me and it's horrible. And I can't, I can't see him anymore. That would make some sense, except that's not consistent with what happens next. (laughs) What happens next is they, they don't go to the police, right? Wouldn't that be where you would go? The first thing you do, if you're the mom and you go, 911, my, my, my son's being sexually molested. No, 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 no. They go to the school, which, by the way, Jerry is an assistant volunteer high school football coach at the same school, Central Mountain High School. That's where you go if you're looking for the money, all right? You're looking for money, you go to the school. By the way, it's also important to point out that one of the basics of this whole case is the, the premises is that Jerry Sandusky was a god to these boys because of Penn State football being the religion of of state college. It's all bullshit, uh, but it's particularly bullshit in this case because Aaron was five years old, five years old when Jerry last coached. He didn't know Jerry as a Penn State coach. He knew Jerry as a assistant volunteer. <laughs> At his high school, a goofy guy who ran a charity was giving him grief about his grades. How much respect does the kid give that? That guy, zero in this day and age. Zero. So he tells the school nothing. No no allegation of anything sexual at all. And the school, because they know Jerry, and I've spoken to the now principal of that school, who was the head football coach at the time, and I know he knows Jerry Zendusky is innocent, but he doesn't have the balls to say it. The school tells Aaron, you might want to think about this and come back to us. Because <laughs> they're like, really? You're going to make some sort of allegation against Jerry Sandusky? 
Of course, that's being portrayed in retrospect as, oh, no one wanted to believe. Well, no one wanted to believe because it made no fucking sense. <laughs> because there was no evidence of it. And because everyone knew Aaron Fisher was a goddamn liar who made stories up all the time. So that's not good enough for the mom because the mom, by the way, I've learned, had already been involved in a sex abuse case. She had provided the police with her brother in what was called the Dr. Barry Bender case, which was a completely different case, but it involved man-on-boy sex acts. It also involved drugs and money and all sorts of things that aren't involved in this case, which is one of the reasons why I'm now convinced Sandusky has to be innocent, because none of the evidence that should be there is there at all. But anyway, it's clear to me that the mom feels bitter that her brother didn't get a big payout from being a sex abuse victim. So now she wants, she feels owed and she's going to use her son to pull this off. And so eventually they get some prosecutors interested in the case. Again, Aaron doesn't tell anybody anything about sex. He doesn't tell his therapist anything about sex for a very long time. It's not till the therapist finally gets Aaron to answer the question, did you ever have oral sex with Jerry Sandusky? And Aaron says, yes. This is after a very long time that, the, that suddenly people go, oh, my God, this must be real. When, in fact, what really happened, here's what really happened. Because <laughs> Aaron kept saying, and it's in his own book. You can read it. I urge you to read it for himself, yourself. Uh, it's by Aaron Fisher and Mike Gillum and, and his mom, uh, Dawn Hennessy. The the reality is Silent No More is the is the name of the book. Please read it. I've given copies of this book out to the press at press conferences, urging them to read what bullcrap this is because it's just unbelievable the ridiculousness uh, of this of this particular story. It's just flat out ridiculous. And so, um, anyway, what really happens is this: Aaron keeps saying, "No one's going to believe me. No one's going to believe me. No one's going to believe me." Finally, Aaron becomes convinced that people will believe him, <laughs> slowly but surely. His therapist is telling him they'll believe him. His mom is telling him, hey, we believe you. And the prosecutor, a woman by the name of Janelle Eschbach, keeps telling him, we believe you, we believe you. So slowly but surely, Aaron starts to realize, well, shit, they're really going to believe this. And Aaron's big goal in his whole life was fancy sports cars. That's what he wanted from very little boy. He told all his friends this. The record is clear. And by the way, guess what he now owns? Lots of very fancy, very expensive sports cars, thanks to the money he got from Penn State and two very nice homes that are right next to each other for some reason. I guess he didn't like the first one, so he built another one right next to it. But the reality is Aaron Fisher got exactly what he wanted. And his story doesn't make any damn sense. And it you know, people have asked me, so what do you think really happened there? I think that Aaron just wanted out of his relationship with Jerry Sandusky, and he might have been smart enough to realize, because kids are taught in this day and age, folks. See, this is the number one thing people need to understand about the nature of child molestation allegations and investigations. We're still trying to make up for an era in the 60s and the 70s and 80s where kids were not educated, and we didn't believe them. And now the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction. 
We've educated all these kids. Hell, I'm a co- I've been a coach of numerous sports at numerous ages. These kids know if a coach raises their voice to you, you go running to mommy and daddy. So <clears throat> the idea that a kid, and I've spoken to buddies of his, they were all taught in school, you know, if someone touches you inappropriately, you, you go running to tell somebody. And Aaron never told anybody, not a friend, nobody. I got interviews with 12 people very close to him, including relatives, friends, girlfriends, parents of friends, supporters, 12 people on the record saying they don't believe Jerry, that Jerry Sineski ever abused Aaron Fisher. I've never found one person come to me and say, guess what? You got it wrong about Aaron Fisher. And here's why. I, here's what I witnessed. Not one. Nobody. And so I think that that was part of it. And I think Aaron knew the game well enough. I also think, and this is a purely off-the-wall theory, but you have to also understand that rural Pennsylvania is basically like Alabama. And there is a culture that has enormous disdain to this day for homosexuality. And you got a hypersexed kid here. Hyper, everybody tells me he is hyper, hypersexed. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to tell you all the stories, but just trust me. Hypersexed, like I've never heard of a 12, 13, 14-year-old uh, boy being. I think it's possible that the basis for the Jerry makes me feel uncomfortable is that when Jerry and he are being physical and goofing around or wrestling or whatever, and Jerry acknowledges doing this, he's a, he's a guy who does not understand physical boundaries. I think it's possible that Aaron got a stray erection and hated himself for it. And I thought, holy shit, what, what, am, I, am I gay? What is, what is this all? What, what is going on here? And that's the source of Jerry makes me feel uncomfortable. And so from that tiny little seed, over time, it gets germinated. Now, this this provokes a two-year grand jury investigation. Two years! They don't find squat. Squat. They don't find any corroborating evidence for Aaron. They don't find another accuser. And they're trying everything. This is an attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania grand jury investigation. And they try everything, and they can't get it. And they're about to drop the case on numerous occasions. On numerous occasions, they just they figure there's just no evidence. Now, the one prosecutor, Janelle Eschbach, it's a fascinating side story here that she buys into all this because, ironically enough, she's a huge Penn State fan. And you're thinking, what? How does that make any sense? Of course, everything about this case is the opposite of what You've been told. She's a huge Penn State fan, so she's actually said that the moment she got the case file on Jerry Sandusky, she got a sick feeling to her stomach and thought he was guilty. Why? Because as a Penn State fan, she couldn't understand why someone as young as Jerry Sandusky would retire from coaching at Penn State. It never occurred to her why anyone would do that. (laughs) When the reality is, this is a guy who just loved kids and wanted to devote his life to the second mile charity. Knew Joe Paterno wasn't retiring anytime soon. He probably, I think he's regretted it. And by the way, not just because he's going to die in prison. I'm sure that makes him regret it. But I think Jerry did regret retiring because Jerry is so naive. And it's related to what happened with Aaron Fisher. 
Jerry is so naive. I think he thought that the glow that he had with kids as a Penn State football coach would maintain itself forever. But it didn't. And with Aaron, he saw a kid that was not responding to him because Aaron didn't know him as a Penn State football coach. Aaron knew him as a goofy guy who volunteered at his high school and had no damn respect for him. And Jerry's actually told me, and I think I've educated him as to, because he's so freaking naive, as to what was really going on here. The memory of kids in this day and age is like two weeks. Anything older than two weeks is ancient history. So he was ancient history to these kids. So back to the investigation. So they don't find squat for two years until they get an email, a very odd email. And I've seen literally, what, a million emails in my life? This one looks like the email you, you get from the uh, African uh, prince who's going to give you $2.8 million if you just give him your personal information. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but there's something odd about the email. And it happens to be written the day after the Republican governor, Tom Corbett, former attorney general who began this investigation, the day after he wins election. Isn't that a little odd? I'm not a conspiracy person at all, but that is super freaking odd. The day after he wins election, there's an email from someone saying, who, by the way, is a former police officer, who I have been able to connect and others have as well, probably has some connection to this Janelle Eschbach person and her husband because they live in the same small town of York, Pennsylvania now, and her, her husband's a former police officer as well. So there's a weird possible connection there. He emails uh, the incorrect person and simply says, hey, you might want to speak to Mike McQuarrie. I hear he might have seen Jerry in the shower with a boy. That's it, by the way. And if there had been some heinous rumor rummaging around for 10 years. That's not what it would have been. It would have been, you got to talk to Mike McQuarrie. Holy crap, I heard about this investigation. He saw Jerry screwing a boy. That's, that's what would be, that's what the email would say. It's not what the email says. So the email gets passed on and they contact Mike McQuarrie. Now, Mike McQuarrie will tell you that when he gets contacted, he's like thrilled. Finally, someone has called me about Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> Because the reality is his wife calls him and says, hey, uh, there's some investigators that have called asking to talk to you. And Mike craps himself because Mike thinks it's about naked pictures of his penis that he's been sending to women, not his wife, through a Penn State phone. By the way, Mike is no longer married. All right. So Mike, and, and by the way, I have proof of this because I have the I have naked pictures of Mike McQuarrie's penis. By the way, one of the stranger elements of this case is, uh, how about my life where I'm showing pictures of my daughter, my new daughter, Diana, to strangers, and I have to make sure that they don't see Mike McQuarrie's penis on my phone. I mean, that's as pathetic as it gets. But Mike McQuarrie is still sending naked pictures of his very ample penis to women he shouldn't be sending them to, he's never even met before. Uh, including people involved in this case that he didn't even realize were involved in the case and were doing sting operations on him. But I digress. So Mike thinks it's about this and maybe about gambling on college football games, which he also apparently did. And he's thrilled to find out (laughs) they want to talk about Jerry Sandusky. And so investigators come to him and say, hey, we got this guy, Aaron Fisher. 
says he's been molested for years. We can't find anybody else to corroborate this. We hear you're a possible witness. Could you have seen a sex act? Mike's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that that could have been it. Yeah, that's the ticket. And they manipulate him. And this is not difficult. I mean, if if I was told by, if I had seen something weird 10 years earlier, right, that that upset me, made me uncomfortable, and then investigators come to me and say, Jerry's a pedophile. Did you see something? Can you help? I think anybody might try to help. And especially when you're not very bright, which Mike is not, you get easily manipulated. So they manipulate his story from, I saw Jerry with a boy and it made me uncomfortable, to somehow, when the grand jury presentment comes out, I saw Jerry raping a boy anally, which he never said, never said, never testified to, and clearly, based upon the evidence, didn't happen. So, once they get McQuarrie, all hell breaks loose. Because now they've got two pillars. And now they can go to a list of hundreds of now male adults from this charity that they have a list of. And they can say to each one of them, we got a witness and we got an accuser. Anything ever happened to you? Now, the vast majority of them say, no, what the hell are you talking about? Jerry's the greatest everything, greatest thing that ever happened to me. However, when you're swimming in this pool, and this is a pool of at-risk kids, now adults with crappy lives, many of them been abused for real themselves. Most of them don't have real good jobs, if jobs at all. They're living on unemployment. They need help. A few might decide to roll the dice. Interestingly, of the trial accusers in this case, according to their Facebook pages, at least four of them are ardent gamblers. At least one of them actually describes himself so we can explain why he's rich as a professional gambler. A couple of them go on gambling trips together. So if you think about this logically, it was the gamblers within this pool that go, yeah, sure, let me let me take the dice and roll and see where this, maybe it'll come up snake eyes or maybe it'll come up sevens or whatever, you know, sixes. The, the reality is these people decided to gamble and it was a gamble that paid off in millions of dollars for them. So over the next year, the prosecution with the help of this Sarah Ganim I already referred to, who puts out a Craigslist ad in local paper with an obvious leak of a grand jury, which was illegal to try to find more accusers because they still can't find any damn credible accusers. But over the next year, they cobble together a case that's basically made of smoke and mirrors, which I even bought into when it happens, when it breaks loose nationally in November of 2011. But now what I know is that in November of 2011, when this story breaks nationally, they, here's what they got. They got two people, Aaron Fisher and so-called victim number four, willing to say that they had a sex act with Jerry Sandusky. I'm not talking about Bill Clinton's definition of sex. I know what sex is, okay? Anything clearly sexual. They got two after three years. They got four others who, by the way, three of them knew each other and were in Jerry Sandusky's book together, including number four, which made four accusers in one photo in his book called Touched. Boy, there's a criminal freaking mastermind for you. But they've got six accusers total. They think they can claim to the media they got eight because two of them don't exist. 
in their minds, in their, in their version of the story, because they don't like Alan Meyer's story and the McQuarrie kids, so they pretend there's no accuser there because they don't like that story at all since he's vindicating Jerry Sandusky. And there's this so-called janitor episode where, unbeknownst to anybody at the time, the prosecution has interviewed the only witness to this, and on the record, this witness said not once, not twice, not three times, actually it was three times, that it was not Jerry Sandusky he saw that night. The prosecution doesn't call him as a witness because they decided, guess what, sir? You must have dementia because you're not giving us the proper answer. So they somehow get it into the trial under hearsay evidence, which was legally a freaking joke. And Jerry gets convicted of major offenses in a case with no date, no accuser, no direct witness, and no contemporaneous report, and where the only witness is actually on record for the only time saying it wasn't Jerry Sandusky. That's a freaking witch hunt, folks. That is a witch hunt on steroids. Now, why does the witch hunt on steroids occur? Well, because when the, the story breaks for the first couple of days, it's not that big of a deal. No one outside of State College, Pennsylvania, remembers Jerry Sandusky. But then ESPN, on that Monday, turns it into a Joe Paterno story. And now we've got a Greek, a Greek tragedy. Now we have the greatest downfall in the history of sports. Now we have the man who was a beacon of integrity, who was the all-time winningest coach in the history of college football, being brought down live on television just before his final home game at home, obviously, against Nebraska, broadcast coincidentally by ESPN. All in a very slow sports week because the NBA was on strike. Baseball had just ended. Hockey and basketball, college basketball hadn't really started yet. Football was in its pre-playoff lull. Perfect. Perfect timing. Perfect storm. Paterno gets fired on a cell phone at night. A riot occurs, allegedly, not really, in State College. All on live television. This is a nuclear freaking explosion over the entire case. Jerry Sandusky goes from a revered member of the community with huge benefit of the doubt and presumption of innocence to a guy who literally, his defense attorney, can no longer get a phone call returned. He is toxic beyond comprehension. He is the guy who got the great Joe Paterno fired. He is a child molester because the media is telling us so. And then Joe Paterno dies two months later, and now he's the pedophile who killed Santa Claus. At this point... And in between, you have this horrendous Bob Costas interview, which actually is so bad, I would argue it is far more consistent with innocence than with guilt because a guilty man who has been dealing with this issue for 40 years of his life as, would be well-prepared, would have thought about this every moment of his life being sexually attracted to young boys. Instead, he responds to Bob Costas like it's the first time he's ever been asked about it because he's never been ever thought about it before because guess what? He's never thought about it before. Because in my opinion, Jerry Sadusky is asexual. He, none of his kids are natural born. He has low testosterone, by the way. He's been medically diagnosed with low testosterone. He's never made a sexual joke or an in innuendo, which is impossible for a football coach, in my experience. That never happens. The reality is he is not a homosexual, which no one wants to address in this. He's not a homosexual. None of his accusers are homosexual. As I told the Glenn Beck show, 
If one of his accusers was like flamboyant, like Milo Iannopoulos, you know, the conservative uh, flamboyantly gay guy who talks about being molested by priests at, at, a, at a teenage age. If one of them was like that, I'd go, you know what? Uh, there's probably something to this. Not one of them's even close. You don't get heterosexual boys at 12, 13, and 14 to have sex with old men without money, drugs, uh, pornography, which there's none of in this case, or payoffs. None. Zero. So anyway, now Jerry is screwed. And the judge, because this is a witch hunt, allows no continuances. Not one continuance. This trial occurs within seven months of the arrest and Joe Paterno's firing, within four or five months of Joe Paterno's death, within three or four months of his attorneys actually getting the discovery in a case with 10 different accusations because they added two more that were total bullshit after the arrest. Because they felt like they had to show, well, you know, this fire, the the floodgates that opened after the arrest provided something. No, they didn't. They provided people looking for money because everybody in the world knew Penn State was now on the hook for a hundred million dollars, which is exactly what they ended up paying out over the last the next five years. So Jerry Sandusky gets convicted in a in a Salem witch trial. Immediately after that, the free report comes out. The free report is based purely on the notion that. Here we have a Penn State board that had panicked and now needed an explanation for why they fired the great Joe Paterno. So Louis Free, who's a scumbag and has done this on numerous other occasions, gives his client exactly what they paid for, a reason for Joe Paterno to have been fired. And the media, before the report even comes out, is literally shaking the pom-poms going, Louis, Louis, Go, Louie. Go, Louie. Because why? Because they're frankly afraid that they might have jumped the gun on this one. That they may have fired and killed Joe Paterno just for fun and for ratings. And when they realize that Free has now given them their explanation, their vindication, they are thrilled. And they are unwilling to look at what a crock of crap the Free Report is. So now the NCAA jumps right on after that. And the NCAA doesn't have a freaking clue about the facts. I have confronted the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, along with NFL Hall of Famer, Franco Harris. You can see that at YouTube. It's hilarious. Emmert doesn't have a clue about the facts of the case. He just signed off on the worst sanctions ever because the media was blowing a hurricane wind at his back. And it was fun. And it showed how much of a tough guy against pedophilia he was. So now you've got this narrative that is set in stone. And you've got all this money creating more accusations, These accusations are ridiculous. They're absurd. And then last year, you have some of those accusations in these settlement cases where all this money is being thrown out with no vetting at all, where Joe Paterno is being implicated nonsensically in cases from the 1970s that supposed accusers are telling Joe Paterno that Jerry molested them and Joe's doing nothing, which forget about the fact that it makes no goddamn sense Because Jerry's a nobody in 1972 and 1976. And Joe has even less incentive to be getting Jerry Sineski out of trouble then than ever. But here's where it really doesn't make any fucking sense. If Joe knows in 1970s that Jerry's a molester, then why does he handle the McQuarrie episode the way that he did in 2001? 
That makes no goddamn sense, and nobody wants to address this because it doesn't matter. This is what I mean by no one being able to tell a full story that makes any sense, that fits all together. They're just slapping everything up against the wall they can because they love the narrative. Anything that's negative towards Penn State, Paterno, the administrator, Sandusky, they just love it. So they'll believe anybody, including Matt Sandusky, who's the biggest freaking liar in the history of the world. Just check out my YouTube video, which is entitled The Overwhelming Case that Matt Sandusky Lied to Oprah Winfrey, which he did. And everybody in the case knows it. So, anyway, you now have all this momentum. You have this narrative where Penn State clearly knew everything that was going on. Now the administrators are as screwed as Sandusky. Because even though they know they're innocent, and they know Jerry's innocent. I know this because I've had extensive contact with Graham Spanier, the former president of Penn State. I mean, super extensive contact. A lot of contact with Gary Schultz, the former head of the campus police, of uh, technically a vice president. And I have indirect contact with Tim Curley, the athletic director. They all know, and I've seen their testimony. I attended Graham Spanier's trial. They all know Jerry is innocent. They all know it, but they can't say that, and they can't even say themselves are innocent because by saying they are innocent, somehow this is insensitive to the accusers who aren't even real. But that's the effed up, upside-down world we're now living in. So these guys are terrified to go in front of a jury because a jury has been brainwashed by five and a half years of bullshit media coverage. So two of them plead to misdemeanors thinking they're not going to go to jail. And I told... I told not them directly, but indirectly, I told people close to the case, this is idiotic. If they think that that deal is going to get adhered to when there is nothing, nothing at all to fear, to screw them over, because the media is not, no media outlet is going to defend them for, oh, wait a minute, their deal got reneged on. And they, they got sent to jail when they were told they weren't going to because this is a unique case. And sure enough, that's what happened. They had no expectation they were going to jail. None. They thought they made a deal not to. And then the judge threw the book at them because the judge was a freaking moron. A compl- I mean, he had no idea the facts of the case. None. He was completely inconsistent. His ruling made no sense at all. It was completely unjustifiable. Even if they were guilty. Even if they were guilty. Of, these, of a misdemeanor, of child endangerment. I mean, everything else had been thrown out over the last five years because it was all bullcrap. They still did not belong going to jail. And two of them have major health issues, and the third has a wife who's got major health issues, and they're going to go to jail over something that did not happen, that they know didn't happen, but they're too cowardly to say it. And so the Penn State president thinks, well, crap, and his lawyers say, They have no case against us. Why would we risk even putting on a defense? And they're thinking this is a normal game. I've used the analogy since football is involved in this story. Everyone involved in this case thinks that this is a football game happening in a domed stadium where it's a controlled environment and, you know, gravity works normally and there's no massive wind and things are logical. They happen normally. No, this is a game being held outside in a freaking hailstorm. That's what this is. You cannot call the same plays in a hailstorm as you can in a dome stadium. And it has been a domino effect of injustice since day one that has never ended and probably never will end. It's the most mind-blowing story I've ever heard. But that's how we got to a situation where one innocent guy whose biggest crime was having boundary issues and loving children too much 
is going to die in prison. Three innocent administrators with sterling reputations have had their reputations destroyed. They're going to prison. Who knows? One of them might even die there, even though it's going to be hopefully a short period of time. But Joe Paterno's reputation destroyed for all time. Statue gone. He'll never be fully honored at Penn State. All the good guys in this case have been destroyed. The bad people, the fake accusers, they're all rich. They're all considered heroes. All the bad guys in this case, all the black hats won. All the white hats got destroyed. Their lives ruined. They're going to prison. I mean... (laughs) I consider myself a white hat in this thing. This has ruined my life too, ruined my career, what was left of it. It's it's everything's upside down. Hundred percent upside down. But that's the real story of what happened. That you will never hear anybody else tell. Because no one else can tell a story from A to Z that makes any damn sense. I just did. And I'll tell that story any place, anytime, anywhere, and no one will ever debate me. Ever. Because they can't. Because there's no logic to the other side. And they know it. And now you know, as Paul Harvey might have said, the rest of the story. For more information, go to our website, framingpaterno.com. That's been figuratively, not literally. It's not a conspiracy. I'm the anti-conspiracy person, despite what the prosecution tells me, says about me, which shows what a pile of bunk their whole case is. Uh, but I hope uh, you get something out of this. And please share this hour of the uh, podcast via social media or word of mouth, or or whatever way you can, I would much appreciate that. Uh, The only other thing I ask of you is if you're someone who sleeps, and when you sleep at night you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.